You may be seated. Am I on? Yes. Thank you, Kai and the band. You can open your Bibles to uh, the book of 1 Peter. We're starting a new series today. I've got to get my computer to open here. There we go. Uh, in AD 64, uh, Rome burned down, and there was speculation that uh, Nero actually set the fire so that he could rebuild Rome uh, the way he wanted it, without having to uh, jump through hoops with the, the Senate. He wanted to build it um, to uh, the, the glory that, that he longed for in his, uh, in his place. Uh, there was a report from one of the historians that, um, that as Nero was watching Rome burn down, he was playing his fiddle and smiling. Um, Nero actually blamed the Christians, though, for setting the fire. Uh, Christians suffered greatly under uh, Nero. They were persecuted. Uh, Nero uh, fed Christians to the lions uh, when the, the gladi- at the gladiator matches. Uh, he lit his garden parties uh, using Christians as torches. Um, Christians suffered greatly at his hands. Peter himself died um, in either AD 65 or 64 um, during the persecution of Christians. And this book, 1 Peter, it comes before that. And you get this feeling in 1 Peter that persecution is in the air. Uh, it's not to the level yet that I just mentioned from Nero, but uh, it's, it's on its way there. Uh, Peter says later in this letter, He says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. He could see what was coming. There certainly was already persecution, but but not yet to that degree. Um, But it was coming in Rome, which later he'll he'll call Rome uh, Babylon. Um, We'll get more into that, but in chapter 5 he says that. But Peter was writing to these churches, these believers in Roman provinces that were either suffering already or very soon would be suffering greatly. And when I think about our church, the, the people that are able to be here with us uh, right now, but, but also all the people that we have at home, we've got a lot of people that are in hard situations. I'd say we have a lot of people that are suffering. It just seems like month by month that list is growing. And to some degree, all of us, over the last few months, we've faced hardship. I mean, I was talking to someone this morning that just was telling me how hard it's been um, in the shelter in place and in, in everything that we've dealt with with COVID. I know some of you are facing right now some of the hardest situations you've ever faced in your life. Now, others, maybe you're not personally going through anything really hard, but you know someone that is and you're, you're trying to walk alongside them and support them. Or maybe others, life, even though it's weird with COVID, maybe actually it feels like life is going pretty well and, and everyone you know, uh, they're doing okay, all things considered. Um, you, you know life is hard, but, but you're, you're doing well right now. But you also know at some point you're going to stare down difficult circumstances because life, life isn't easy. Right? Jesus never promised us an easy life. He, he said, no, you're actually going to face a lot of trial, a lot of tribulation. So for the Christian, we know that there is much joy 
just, just because we are saved, we have much joy, our eternity is secure, but we also know that in this life we will face sorrow. And right now I feel that, just the state of our broken world, I, I feel the sadness that, that just feels like it's, uh, it's looming everywhere. And I know it's a broken world that I've contributed to, to some of the problems. So Peter wrote this letter to believers and he's encouraging them in their suffering, in their hardship to live holy lives, to stand firm in truth, to point to Jesus, the God-man who suffered for us. So this letter, it just seems really timely for us to saturate ourselves in for the next few months. We're only going to get into two verses today. The first two verses of the book starts off, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we know Peter. Right? Peter, uh, maybe you remember Peter's a fisherman. Um, he, he just left. He left it all to follow Jesus. If you're paying attention when you read the Gospels, you realize that Peter's married. His mother-in-law is mentioned a couple different times. Peter was a bold, bold guy, both in the words that he spoke, but also his actions. Right? He's the guy that when, when they're coming to arrest Jesus, Peter whips out a sword, swings it. And I'm guessing he wasn't aiming for just the guy's ear, but that's what he cut off. He cut off his ear. You might remember that Peter, when Jesus is walking on the water, Peter asked Jesus, command me to come out and walk to you on the water. And, and he was successful for a bit. After Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter wanted to go out fishing. Some of the guys went with him. And, and, and Jesus from the shore tells him how to catch some fish. And Peter realizes that it's Jesus. And he jumps out of the boat and swims to Jesus because he wants to be with him so badly. But do you remember the first time that that happened? When, when, when Peter first met Jesus, Jesus says, cast on the other side. He pulls up all these fish and then he, he, he sees Jesus and he says, get away from me. But now he wants so badly to be with Jesus that he ditches his boat. Peter was in Jesus' inner circle with James and John. We certainly remember that in his boldness, he claimed that he would stay true to Jesus even if everyone else denied him. And yet Peter denied him three times. However, Jesus met him with grace and forgiveness. Peter's name used to be Simon, but Jesus gave him a new name, Cephas or Peter, which meant the rock. And it's extraordinary coming out of First and Second Samuel, how many times we've talked about David saying that, that God is the rock. And here Jesus names Peter the rock. And he becomes the leader of the early church, the apostles. He preaches that first time and 3,000 people come to know Christ. Peter ended up going to prison for Christ. He eventually died in Rome for Jesus. So in a sense, you hear about Peter and Peter was a great man. But in another way, Peter was an ordinary man. In Acts 4.13, 
uh, Peter and John were, were facing a, a religious council. They were upset that they were preaching Jesus. And then this is what it says. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus, right? So, so they see Peter and John and, and the words that they use and they're going, you have no formal training and yet you're speaking in amazing ways about Christ. Jesus had changed absolutely everything for Peter. Without Christ, Peter was average. Uh, I remember years and years ago, there was a student in our youth group that wore a shirt that I loved. He, it said, you're unique like everyone else. And, and Peter he was an average guy. He was bold, but he was an average guy on his own. He couldn't follow Christ like he swore he would and could. But with Christ, everything changed. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And certainly, Peter worked hard. Right? You meet Christians who know their Bibles really, really well, and it is Spirit-enabled, and they have a love for God. They spend time in God's Word. They don't just read it regularly, though they certainly do that, but they meditate on God's Word. They're saturated in Scripture. And we do that because in God's Word, we meet with God. We commune with God. I've been um, working the last few years at improving my smoked salmon making skills. Um, so I've gotten, like I love making smoked salmon. To me, smoked salmon is such a, a treat. So I've got this brine recipe, this dry brine that, I don't know, it's perfected, but it's where I want it. It's mostly brown sugar and some kosher salt, a little pepper, uh, some, some onion salt, and some garlic powder. Um, and and I, I coat the bottom of a glass pan with that, right? And then I put the fillets on, and then I completely cover the fillets in this dry brine. And if you were to look at this glass pan, you, you literally can't tell there's fish in it. It just looks like a ton of sugar, and it sits in the fridge usually like 8, 10, 12 hours. And then I, then I rinse it off, I pat it dry, and then I let it sit in the fridge another 2 to 4 hours so it can develop uh, what, what's called a pellicle. It needs that time to develop this pellicle, which is this, uh, it's like this little, uh, almost like a, a sticky skin that develops over the filet. And what that does is that when I smoke it for another like three, four hours, the smoke adheres to the fish so much better because of this pellicle that's on it. As Christ followers, we want to be saturated, like, like my smoked salmon, right? I want to be saturated in all those flavors as Christ followers. We want to be saturated in God's revelation to us. Different food analogy here, and follow me. Um, I think that in our fast-paced world, we so often treat God's Word like, like a Nutri-Grain bar, right? So I, I try to have like a good breakfast, like eggs or uh, oatmeal. But when I'm in a rush, I just grab a Nutri-Grain bar, run out the door, eat it while I'm in the car. I'm spilling crumbs all over my car. And it, it gives me some of what I need. I mean, I'm not saying a Nutri-Grain bar is super healthy, but it does have some things in it that, that help me. Um, and I think we treat God's Word like that. Right? Right? A Nutri-Grain bar is like really just a snack, and, and it's not even that great for you. We, we treat God's Word like, like we just need little bits of it. Like verse of the day is great on your phone. But if that's all you're getting, you'll be malnourished spiritually. Do we feast on God's word? You can't look at Peter and say he's just a really smart guy. No, I guarantee that he saturated himself in the word, that he meditated 
on God's word, that, that he talked about the word with other Christ followers and wrestled through things. Later in this letter, Peter will tell us, Christians, you need to be ready to make a defense, to explain why you believe in Jesus, why you trust Jesus. And we're so much better prepared to share that when the word dwells richly in us, like Paul says in Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So if we want to stand firm as Christ's followers, which is what Peter wants for us, he'll talk about that in chapter five, then we need God's word. So Peter, he's a great man, but make no mistake, he's great because Jesus made him great. The verse goes on, it says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These, these are the churches that today would be modern day Turkey. These are churches in Roman provinces, but, but who, who makes up these churches? Are they Jews that have just been exiled from their homeland outside of Israel? Or is it a picture of Christians not yet in their home, not yet in heaven? I'm sure that some of these believers in these churches are Jews. Maybe some ended up there because of early persecution in the church. But as you read 1 Peter there are a number of indicators that many of these are Gentiles that have come to know and love Jesus. I'm sure for some of these Gentiles, they've been living in these cities their whole lives. So for Peter to call them elect exiles of the dispersion, I'm guessing that got their attention. Perhaps some thought, exiles, what are you talking about? I've been in Cappadocia my whole life. I think it seems more likely that he's calling all Christians exiles because we are not home yet. So first, let's look at election. He calls us elect. And this, as a Christian, this is a part of your identity. You are elect or you are chosen. Jesus says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, you know, we're not to get big heads here. We won't get into all the scripture here, but you're not chosen. I hate to break this to you because you're great. Uh, you weren't chosen by God because you're strong or faithful or intelligent or that you bring something to the body of Christ that God really needed that only you could bring. No, it's in his grace that God chooses us. We'll get more into this verse next week, but verse three, Peter says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I know the doctrine of election for some people uh, is hard because if, if God chooses some, that means there's others he doesn't choose. And we, we'll get into that some point. We're not going to get into that today because I want us to see Peter's reason for reminding these churches that they are God's elect. Being chosen, it should bring us great comfort. We like to be chosen, right? When you're a kid, you love it when your teacher like chooses you for a special job or your choir director or your band director or your coach. Even as an adult though, we like to be chosen. Maybe it's a, a project at work, a team that you get put on by your boss or you're nominated in an organization to lead something. But how much greater is it that God has chosen his people Later, 
in chapter two, he'll say, but you are a chosen race and, and keep in mind, right? God's people, it, it's made up of, uh, of people from every tongue, every tribe, every race, okay? But he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think there's a really helpful picture in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. God paints this picture of of what this election, what this choosing of Israel is like. He he describes this baby that is born. And and normally, the, the birth of a baby, this should be a joyful occasion. But the picture here is sad. He says that this baby's been abandoned, lying in an open field. This is the umbilical cord wasn't even cut, lying there just wallowing in blood. No doubt this baby is crying and screaming. No one, though, is paying attention. And God sees this baby and God says, live. And God's the only one who can speak life into anything. He says that I made you, I made you flourish like a plant in the open field. And he paints this picture of this once abandoned baby growing and thriving because of him. He says, I made a vow with you and entered a covenant with you. And then he says, you became mine. He does everything, right? He finds the abandoned baby, bathes it clothes it, feeds it, promises to care for, makes this helpless infant his own. As God's people, we are chosen by God. And to me, this is incredibly comforting, partially because it means security for me in Jesus. He will never let us go. Our our world feels so unstable right now, but we remember Especially when we were back in John, I remember how clear Jesus is. He says things like, no one will be lost that the Father has given to me. While it feels good as a kid to be chosen for that choir solo or as an adult to be a part of that special project, you know in the back of your mind that if you don't perform or if your boss even just changes their mind, It's all over, but that's not happening with our Heavenly Father. Everyone who's been chosen in Him is secure in Him. So when Peter calls Christ's followers elect, this, it should comfort our souls as believers. No matter what's going on in the world, no matter the hardship, no matter the uncertainty, no matter what your loved ones are doing or aren't doing, no matter what happens with your job, or your house, no matter who wins or loses an election, if you believe in Christ, you're chosen by the grace of God to be a part of his people, his very own possession. Does that bring you comfort, Christians? He says that we're exiles. Different translations may read differently here. There are certainly different words for exiles. Sojourners, I heard someone say refugees, aliens, strangers, immigrants, all these work with exiles. And, and if you've read your Bible, if you've been to church for a while, you probably remember hearing about exiles in Scripture. At least in the back of your mind, you know the Jews were exiled because of their sin and the rebellion against God. They were exiled. Their sin led them into exile. Peter and, and the other New Testament authors, they, they, they took uh, this exile picture in the Old Testament and he says that this is, this is for Jesus' followers now. 
not because their sin leads them into exile, but that God's people are to see themselves as exiles, to live these uh, lives as exiles, as foreigners. Even Even though you've been a part of this world your whole life, we're to live as foreigners. There's a, a related verb that I won't even try to pronounce that uh, the king of Egypt used saying that visitors to Alexandria sh- shouldn't sojourn more than 20 days in Alexandria because what was happening was uh, people were coming from the rural areas to Alexandria and seeing the, the big city life, all the luxury, and they were leaving the rural areas, moving to Alexandria, and they were neglecting this essential work, the, the agricultural work that had to happen. So he didn't want their visit to become more than a visit. He wanted them to know where their home was, that they had a job to do. So this word for exile, it means that we're temporary residents in a foreign place. Now, I haven't been to many other countries, but if you've been to another country, when you cross the border or or when the plane lands and you get off the plane, you certainly notice some similarities to back home, to your culture. But what really jumps out is what is different. Right? You realize how differently you do life in your culture. You think differently. You have different values, different customs, differences in languages, even if the languages are incredibly similar, maybe different rules. And Peter says to God's people, this is who you are. This is what it's like. If you are a Christ follower, you are an exile. And I don't think it's because they weren't living in Palestine. This is part of the identity of a Christ follower, no matter where you are geographically. So the idea is that as believers, this world is not our home, at least not the way it is now. Hebrews eleven thirteen, it's talking. It's like the faith hall of fame, and it says this. It says, uh, "These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth." God's people living in as exiles is this major theme that runs all throughout the Bible. It's not just the Babylonian exile or, or the Assyrian exile. It's one that if If you're anything like me, you've known it's in Scripture, but you haven't really paid attention to it. But then when you start to look, you realize there's these pictures of exile everywhere, including right at the beginning with Adam and Eve as they're exiled from the garden. You remember Abraham was a sojourner. And you start connecting these dots in Scripture and then placing this truth, this exile status in your life from God's Word. And you see how helpful it is as a follower of Christ to live as an exile, to think of yourself as an exile. This is certainly what the New Testament teaches, not just Peter. Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. The author in Hebrews, in in chapter 13, he says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. So Christ followers are citizens, not of this world or this country, but our true citizenship is is in heaven. We're exiles, we're sojourners. We're aliens and immigrants. As you read through your Bible, start looking for this and you will see it everywhere. But the challenge is this world is so good. It works so hard at making us feel like this is our home, even though it's a foreign land to us as Christians. You may not remember the name Demas, but in 2 Timothy, Paul says uh, this in 4.10. He says, for Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. 
right? He was once a gospel worker, but something about this world just roped him in. The world won out over living for Christ. That's how Paul saw it. And when I read that, I think, man, if that could happen to someone who worked alongside with the Apostle Paul, that could happen to any Christ follower, that the world could rope us in. And it can happen in different ways. Uh, The love of a comfortable life or or, or the love of all the things we can accumulate. It can happen in, in choosing to pursue someone that doesn't know and love Jesus Maybe it happens because we're afraid of what people will think of us or persecution we might face. It can happen because of a love of being great in the eyes of the world, living just to be successful. So I ask you, how is the world attempting to rope you in? What is the world's strategy to get your heart away from Jesus? Paul says, we're, or Peter says, we're elect exiles. And verse two gives us kind of the how and the why we are elect exiles. How are we elect exiles? He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then he says, and in the sanctification of the Spirit. He'll go on to talk about Jesus. We, we see Peter has a, a trini, Trinitarian understanding here. The how, he says, well, it's according to the foreknowledge of the Father. You didn't find God. We think that we found God, but scripture's clear. No, he knew you long before you existed and chose you. He says, how? Well, by the Spirit sanctifying you, the Spirit is shaping you more and more into the image of Christ. The Spirit is setting you aside for his holy purposes. And then he answers the why. Why are we elect exiles? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And for obedience, that part makes sense. I'm, I'm an elect exile for obedience to Christ, but I got hung up on the, what's the for, with, or for sprinkling with his blood? What is that? Well, look in verse 17 of chapter one, partway down. It says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, and this is what you were ransomed with, but with the precious blood of Christ like Uh, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Jesus' blood was shed. The blood ransomed you from these futile ways that he's going to talk about in this book. And and you remember before Christ, you used to live for futile things. You used to try and live outside of God, but it was dead end after dead end. And and sometimes you thought you had it figured out. And like I said, he he lists all kinds of futile ways and, and all of it's idolatry. It's us worshiping anything but Yahweh, but the true God. So these idolaters, meaning that they're living in these futile ways, they worship these ways. They were idols in their lives. And maybe there were times for you where you felt like, okay, life is finally making sense and coming together. But then you turn another corner and realize, no, it's another dead end, another futile way. And Peter says, Jesus ransomed you with his blood from those futile ways. They, we, have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus for obedience to Christ. And if you've come to know Christ, you know what that's like. Maybe you've spent time around a group of people that that you used to hang out with before knowing and trusting Jesus. And and, and maybe, maybe you're going in hopes to even talk with them about Jesus, to share Jesus. So you try to spend time with them again. And you're with them 
and you're doing maybe even some of the same stuff you used to do before, but you feel like an outsider. You feel alien, right? You don't want those futile ways anymore. What you want is, is to obey Christ because of God's spirit in you. You feel like this exile, right? You can tell that God has made you his own. He's chosen you by his foreknowledge, sanctified you by the spirit. And he's given you a heart that wants to obey Christ by the blood of Jesus. He took that heart that Jeremiah describes, this heart of stone that you had, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And now what you desire is God. Your heart wants to be obedient to Christ. And this change is so different that you feel like an outsider. You feel like an exile or an alien. And today, with the state of our world, it's kind of easy as a Christian to say, man, this world's not my home. I've heard so many people and I've said it myself, like it'd just be so great if Jesus would come now. But what about when, when we get to the new normal, whatever that is, when life starts to get comfortable again, this world still is not our home. We're to live as God's elect exiles. So how do we live in this world as exiles, in a world that's trying to make you feel at home, trying to get you to set down roots here? God said this, to exiles in Jer- Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. And he says this, but seek the welfare of the city, right? This is the city they've been exiled. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare, right? This helps me understand how I'm to live as an exile in this world that rejects Jesus. Stories from Daniel also help me. Daniel, you'll remember, and and, and some other highly skilled Israelites were taken to Babylon and they were chosen to serve in really some prestigious roles in this foreign kingdom. And what they did as exiles is remarkable. They were a blessing to this foreign land. They brought about good. They were a blessing to the rulers of uh, of this other kingdom. And we remember how many times in Daniel, a ruler could see at least for a moment how great the God of Israel was. Daniel and his friends, they stuck to their worship of God and God alone. They lived in a despicable place in many ways. They saw the nation practice despicable things. And yet they glorified God. They would not bow down to anyone but Yahweh. And they're willing to suffer the consequences for that. And we're going to think a lot in 1 Peter about suffering. Like I said, we have a lot of people in our church right now that are suffering. A lot of people are dealing with diseases. Many of you feel like your body is just failing you. Some of you are dealing with loss. Uh, You're facing hardship in, in some way. We have people being falsely accused. We have families that are, are being ripped apart. Some of you have family members that mock you for knowing and trusting in Jesus. Peter helps us answer the question, how do we suffer as Christians? How is our suffering connected with the suffering of Christ? So no matter what we face, Peter wants us to stand firm in the truth of God's grace. 
The harvest, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are part of God's chosen people called to live this life as a foreigner, a life that does not, or a life that does look different, a life that longs to obey Christ because his blood was shed for you, a life that points to your Savior, even in the middle of hardship and suffering, even in persecution. You or we, as Paul says, we're not, uh, we're not our own. We've been purchased by his blood. And like I said before, it's, it's hard for me to imagine a better book for us to go through over the next few months as a church. Peter wanted the churches in the Roman provinces to keep their eyes on the truth. And I can't think of a time where, where it's felt more important for myself, for Christians to know the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you uh, for, for the timing uh, of us being in First Peter. I think I want to do this book months and months ago, and yet I'm so glad that we're doing it right now. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that, that, that love your word, right? not, not to fill our brains with with stats and facts, but to know you, God, to meet with you, to commune with you, Lord, because we want to be a people that are obedient to you. We know, Christ, that you've suffered for us, and God, we want to be a people that are ready to suffer you, to point this world to the God who suffers. Jesus, we pray for our world. God, we pray that you would raise up labors for the harvest, that you'd raise us up, Lord, as a people that will talk about you of people that, that are ready to share the hope that we have, to share why we believe in you, Jesus. Lord, we pray that our hearts, our minds would be yours. I pray for my brothers and sisters that aren't able to be with us, or our friends that are watching at home. God, will you bless their households? Will you bless them in everything that they are going through? And I pray, I long for the time when all of us can get together again as your body. It's in your name we pray, amen.